Hi guys and ladies, uh, we've got another fantastic uh, episode about to happen and another very interesting guy um, who is my next guest, a guy called Chris Fallows uh, from South Africa. Um, I first come across your work because we were doing an exhibition at the famous Saatchi Gallery in London, Chelsea for Start Startnet last year. And as I was saying just off of um, camera there, Chris, um, last year was the year of COVID-19 and you know, horrendous amount of lockdowns. But we seem to find a little gap in the lockdown where we could do this fantastic show at the Saatchi Gallery. And it was such an honour just to, you know, exhibit there, uh, align your brand with Saatchi, and then also be um, showing your artworks alongside so many different artists and photographers. And I went upstairs to see Chloe, who I know really well, Lopez, and um, I walked into this room and there I was inside this, you know, this, this room with all this fantastic uh, photography. Now, I've got to be honest, I've been in the art market since 2014. I'm not from an art background. It was right place, right time. Even though I work on Richard Hamilton's market, which he's known as a painter, my true love, if I were to collect for myself, is photography. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think because it's real and because... I, uh, you know, I, I can appreciate the skill and the timing that you guys do. I, it really resonates with me. So your artwork is second to none, in my opinion. So Chris, welcome on board on, on the podcast. I know it's going to be a good talk. Steve, thanks so much. And thank you for those kind words. And um, as you said, for me, it was an incredible honor and privilege to be able to exhibit at Start, which was really the, the launch of, of my collection. For the last 30 years, uh, I've been immersed in working with many of the world's most iconic species and some of the world's most remote locations. And um, that was really a culmination of bringing all those years' work to the market. And I couldn't have thought of a better place, really, than, than the Sachi Gallery. Yeah, I mean, your resume, uh, Chris, I know we're going to go into like a slideshow shortly and we're going to talk about certain images, but, I mean, you've worked, you know, on 60 different documentaries, you travel around the world, you've worked alongside David Attenborough, um, I know you've been in New York Times, Los Angeles Times, BBC Wildlife, National Geographic. You've been on the Discovery Channel, BBC. I mean, the list is endless. I mean, I can keep on talking about all these things that you've done. It's such an incredible thing. And when I was younger, Chris, my definition of becoming a success was this multimillionaire, nice cars, nice watches, big houses and all that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, there is still a place in, in you know, in my mind as a successful, wealthy person. There is still part of that there. But as I've grown older, now I'm 35 years of age and I'm a father, I've got a young son, um, my my outlook on life has changed. And really and truly, it's about experiences. And what you do is basically my interpretation of a very successful and wealthy person because the amount of experiences that you must have had behind that lens, chasing and looking at different wildlife and different species, I mean... I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm envious of what you've done because sometimes I think here and I'm working hard in Soho and I'm, you know, trying to drum up business and build a brand and I still want to do that. But sometimes you do have the thought of, well, if I just packed everything up and just use my money to travel the world and look at all this stuff, wouldn't I get to my end goal anyway, which is to have all these big, big experiences. And I guess where you can do it through your profession, you, you, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a win-win for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, um, I've been very lucky to have a passion from as long as I can remember. And that's always been nature and wildlife. <clears throat> and as you say, you know, if, if you can have experiences 
that um, match your passion, you're the wealthiest person in the world because every morning you wake up looking forward to something and you're actually able to go out there and do it. And my work has taken me to all seven continents many times and I've been privileged to have worked at extremely close and intimate quarters with many of the world's most iconic species. And I think one of the most rewarding things has actually been to, to get to know these animals. And, and when I say that, by getting to know them, you get to understand their comfort levels. You get to understand really what they, they feel threatened by. And if you're able to harness that knowledge, you're actually able to get incredibly close to them and have intimate relationships with these animals. And, and I think a lot of my images are an end product of that, you know. And, and when I look at them, I, I don't just see a hopefully magnificent photograph. What I see is a a magnificent interaction where I was humbled enough to be allowed to be close to a completely wild animal, in some cases, you know, very famous predators. And they allowed me into their space, and it was really by getting to know what made that animal sick that allowed it. So it's a culmination of, of I guess, a lifetime of getting to know these creatures that finally gives you the reward of, of, of spending close proximity, getting into close proximity with them. And, as you say, you, you can't really put a, an amount on that. It's, for, for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like owning the, the crown jewels and you can have those experiences that few people on this planet have, have ever had and I'll forever be incredibly humbled, incredibly grateful. And, um, yeah, if it all ended tomorrow, I can honestly say I, I have, I have no regrets. To be able to follow your passion from day one. Wow. How lucky can you ever be? Yeah. Well, look, one of my goals, and just to put it in context, I know so many successful people, when they get a bit bit older or during their time as, a, as an entrepreneur, a lot of people fly over to South Africa and spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds um, going off to the safaris and stuff. But yet, this is something that you just do on the, on the regular. And, and like you said, you're, you're going all the way around the world. You're meeting incredible people. You're coming across the most fierce, the most largest, you know, the most, you know, greatest animals on, on the face of the planet. And you get to take photos of, of them and do documentaries, which is fantastic. And working alongside someone like David Attenborough, who is an absolute legend in, in, in my mind. I mean, what, what a great feeling that must be as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was lucky enough to first work on a show that he narrated back in, in, in 1993 um, called Great White Shark for BBC's uh, Wildlife on One series. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think David has, has inspired countless generations to appreciate wildlife. He's done it in a way that is unsensationalized. It's never really been about him. It's always been about the animals he, he's been depicting or, or talking about. And... You know, nowadays, obviously, Sir David is, is really about trying to convince the world to change their ways if we are to have these animals left on our planet. And ultimately, even if that's not the end goal, to really maintain a planet that looks after us. So I think, you know, he, he, he's really a man of, of wise words, incredible inspiration, and has taken audiences who, who don't have the opportunity to really the the corners and extremes of the planet to enjoy what what is on this planet. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's another natural history figure that is as inspirational and has touched as many people as Sir David. I definitely second that. And every time a documentary comes out of his, 
Um, you know, it, it just seems like the production, the uh, the intimate uh, intimacy with the animals always steps up a level. And he always has a very, very compelling sort of uh, message. And I noticed on the last few documentaries, it's all been about we need to change as humans in order for the world to change. Because sometimes we have a misconception, even as entrepreneurs and go-getters, we want the world to change and we expect it to change. The only way the world changes if we change first. And I think some of his messages have been really on point with that. And I've been certainly trying to change what I've been doing over the last couple of years as well. So, um, yeah, very compelling. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you say, change lies really within. And um, I've been very lucky to work alongside many of the world's most well-known naturalists and experienced cameramen and, you know, Many of these people have told me what it used to be like before my time and how they used to see so many more elephants, so many more sharks, and how, you know, when I first started working, there were actually so so many fewer. And I, I thought, well, it can only get better from here. And there was so much talk when I was a young guy, you know, in the, in the, in the mid-1980s, early 1990s of <clears throat> conservation and changing our ways. But in reality, so many more animals are gone. I mean, if you look at elephants, you're down to 400,000 elephants from a population of over 10 million at the, at the turn of the 20th century. You look at lions, there's 20,000 left in Africa. Not, not more than 30 years ago, that number was nearly 100,000 animals. And this has happened in my generation's time, where we were already made wiser by the previous generation. And what I really fear is that we're constantly talking about needing to make change. But in reality, what is happening to the environment is almost accelerating in some cases, that if we don't actually start putting real action to our words, it's all going to be gone. And sadly, some of my most well-known work are of animals or behavior that doesn't any longer exist. And I guess, you know, one of the, the, the saddest things for me was in, in 1996, I was very lucky and privileged to be the individual who discovered the location on the planet where the great white sharks fly out of the water to catch their prey. And that went viral and became a worldwide phenomenon. It became one of the world's most talked about wildlife events. And having discovered that, now, 25 years later, that behavior no longer exists in South Africa. And the reason for that is by, purely because of very poor fisheries management and how we let the, the primary prey source of the great white sharks, which is actually not seals, the smaller shark species, be completely overfished for people to eat fish and chips in Australia and, and UK and, and elsewhere in Europe. And, and, and I think, you know, if we can't preserve arguably the world's most famous marine natural history event, in a space and, and see it disappear in the space of 25 years. If that's not a wake up call to everybody, then what is? And you know, unfortunately, I can speak firsthand having discovered it, enjoyed it, watched it slowly start decreasing, started acting in a panicked way to try and tell everybody what was happening, and then see no buy in from the South African government has been, um, it's been an incredible eye opener and really is a call to action for anyone else in the world. That hey, things are disappearing really fast. And the disappearance of these things is going to lead to serious, serious effects. We need to wake up, and we need to wake up right now. I couldn't, I couldn't I, you know, 
you know, it's just, as, as you're speaking here, Chris, I'm just getting gripped by the knowledge and the, by the passion that you've got. And it's just so scary because I've got a son and, you know, in, in years to come, there might be not, there, there, there may not be something, you know, there might, may not be polar bears, for example. And it's something I've been taking for granted, you know, as a young kid. I've never gone to see them in a while, but you get to see them on TV, on these great documentaries and stuff. And just to think one day, like my son or maybe his children, they might, may not even know what they are. And the only way they might know what they are is if they're kept in, in a zoo or some sort of concert, you know, I don't know, some, some sort of place where they, where, where they keep these be- beautiful animals. The reality is we need to change things and we need to change things fast. Um, now I know we're going to go into a, a slideshow here, Chris. Uh, shortly, um, one of the ones that I saw when I was researching you in 1996, you got one of the first or the first shark breaching shots, and I've just seen a sneak preview of the slideshow. So, if you want to tell us about that, what it means by a, a shark breaching? Sure, absolutely. I'm just going to share it with the audience, and uh, we can pick it up from there. You got that on your screen? Got it. Yeah, so in 1996, I'd been working with Great White Sharks at a location called Dyer Island in, in South Africa, and uh, I'd, I'd moved to another area called Seal Island in, in False Bay. And um, I was very lucky that when I first ventured out to this location, I'd been working on a couple of documentaries beforehand where we had placed seal-shaped decoys on the surface in this area called Transpire, the sharks had circled it. And so the idea came to me to actually pull a decoy behind a boat, not thinking anything would happen. And lo and behold, we were working off a, a three and a half meter inflatable boat. When I was 21 years of age, it's pretty much all I could have afforded. And um, the small great white shark came flying out the water with the decoy in its mouth. And I'll never forget looking at this shark flying through the air being completely stupefied thinking well was this a one-saw shark spat out the decoy we tied it on pulled it behind the boat again and sure enough another shark came flying out and obviously the penny dropped straight away that i discovered some truly incredible behavior over the next few years that we spent there we very quickly learned that this was completely natural behavior the sharks in this area were flying out the water as a culmination to a hunting technique they were using. So they stay down low, the seal's bobbing on the surface, and then they come up at high speed, and the inertia takes them clear of the water, sometimes 10, 12, even 15 foot clear. And it's just the most incredible spectacle. You know, people are fascinated by sharks. I think in, in the natural world, there's no more emotive word than shark. I mean, if you ever want to clear a beach of bathers, just shout shark. Nothing will do it quicker. And um, sharks now have developed a cult-like following, which is fantastic. You know, Shark Week in the, in the U.S. has approximately 30 million viewers every year. And, and around the world, a global, global audience of hundreds of millions. People are fascinated by sharks. I, I think instead of seeing them as mindless killing machines, we now respect them as, as the ultimate and perfect predator. With over 500 species, each occupying its own unique niche in the ocean, <laughs> They're pretty diverse and, and pretty specialized creatures. And, uh, yeah, there, there really is a, a shark out there for, for everybody. And, you know, having worked with these animals, one of the, the most um, one of the most amazing things for me was getting to know their personalities. Each shark 
has got a unique personality. Just like a group of people in the room, and people will be surprised to know that some great white sharks are incredibly shy. Some are very assertive, bold, and domineering. And we've watched them grow from, you know, young individuals to full-grown adults and spent virtually, in some cases, almost a shark, most of a shark's life cycle with it. And, yeah, when every year when that individual would come back, it was like seeing an old friend. And, yeah, obviously when they, they don't, it's, it's a different story altogether. But this particular image really was the image that, that launched my wildlife photogra photographic career. I took it in 2001. It was actually the, the photo that um, won the, the start art fair at the, the Saatchi Gallery last year, and I was in, incredibly proud of that. And for me, if you had said to me, you know, 30 years ago, if you could take any photograph of a great white shark and design it, what would it be? And in this case, it's a, a two and a half thousand pound great white shark flying towards me in full predatory mode, showing the capabilities of the animal. And uh, yeah, just a, an, an incredible privilege to see that and I'll never forget it was in the days of, of slide film where unlike today where you take a photograph and you just look on the back of your camera and you've either nailed it or you haven't you have to take a, the slides into a lab wait for them to be processed and then you go through this little thing of looking through a loop and I took it into the studio on a, on a Friday afternoon just as the studio was closing and I knew when I'd taken the image it was something special even though a breach lasts less than a second your eyes and mind register what you've seen, the finer details you're not sure of. I took it into the lab and I said to the, the lab guys who we worked very closely with, please, please be extremely careful with this roll of film. I think I've got something special. And I remember waiting the whole weekend, not knowing whether I'd nailed the shot or got the shot or, or what the situation would be. And I walked into that lab on the Monday morning and everybody in the studio was clapping. And I knew something was good. Oh, I man. took the loop and I started, I started looking at the first frame. And it was an amazing frame with a mouth open, but it was completely soft. And I thought to myself, God, this is not good. And then the second frame was this one. And um, perfectly sharp, captured the, the, the behavior as well as I possibly could have. And... Um, yeah, I've missed many great opportunities since then. And this was one that fortunately I nailed and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been the reason, you know, that I got my photographic career on its way. But um, the Great White Shark really is, a, you know, is, is, a, is an icon. And it, it, there's so many other different ways to, to see this animal. I'm just going to share with you a, a couple of others, if I may, um, of the, the different behaviors we've seen out there and the, the different things we've seen. You know, it's, every time I, I work with these animals, it's, it's a privilege. And, you know, to, to see them in, in full action is, uh, is truly incredible. This, this one here is uh, a shot I took in New Zealand. I was on the, on the sea floor in a tiny little cage that I was walking around like Fred Flintstone. And... The shark had been circling me for around about 20 minutes, a, a good-sized animal about four meters or so in length, and suddenly it detected a seal on the surface. And I watched this animal's calm, calm behavior go to a completely different level. It became this coiled spring, watching the surface, all its senses heightened, and then launched upwards. And, and this was the, the moment just before that. You can see the muscles tightening in its belly. Yeah. You can see the, the heightened state of interest. And it was one of those moments, you know, that, that really was all about the sophistication of this animal. 
Wow. And then, you know, one of the things, Steve, working with these animals over the course of three decades or more has been the, the emotions that we've gone through. You know, you, you're out there working with predators, and, and I love predators. I love the way they move. I love the strategies they use. I, I, I have to say I love the thrill of being close to them. It's, it's something, uh, the whole experience is, is just sensorial. It's, it's, it's beautiful. The adrenaline, and, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's an adrenaline rush in, in all different forms. There's the excitement of being close to them, the, the drama of a hunt, and then, you know, the outcome. I'm, I'm not a person who likes seeing what animals die, but um, over the course of the last 30 years, we've, we've been fortunate enough to witness over 10,000 predatory events, and some of them have just defied the narrow gap between life and death by the finest of margin. This was actually when we were working on planet Earth, and uh, this seal used the shark's teeth as a final point of leverage to actually push itself out of the shark's jaw. Wow. And miraculously, that seal escaped. And, you know, what I learned over the years was the incredible balance you have in nature. The great white shark successed Seal Island over, after 10,500 predatory events was 49.6%, the call is 50%. So there's this perfect balance, this, this dance of death between predator and prey, with the prey, in the case of the seal, having the agility and endurance, and the shark, the strength and the speed. And it's this beautiful weave and dance of the one trying to outwit, outlast, and escape from the other, and in case of the shark, obviously trying to make sure it, it, it secures its next meal. So, Chris, and just, the shark can just, make just to many mistakes. Interject there slightly because there's so much I want to talk to you. I mean, it's it's just absolutely fascinating. This. So, do you know when the the shark is looking up and it can detect a seal? Um, how far down did you say the shark is? How much does a, a shark like, like that weigh, and how much speed do they pick up as they thrust through the, through the ocean? Yeah, so where, where I am there, I'm, I'm only about 40 feet deep. Um, the, the, shark, the shark will move at roughly around about 25 miles an hour when it's going at full speed. That is going. Maybe, maybe, maybe potentially even more, and a shark like that weighs, that particular animal probably weighs about 2,000 to 2,200 pounds. They can weigh as much as 5,000 pounds. But when they become really huge animals like that, firstly, they're incredibly rare, but they change their prey source slightly because for a 5,000-pound shark to catch an agile young seal is not that easy. So they tend to scavenge a lot more and feed on things like dead whale carcasses to supplement their diet a lot more than these, these younger animals. These sharks are, if you could equate them to a human age group, are probably like 18 to, to 30 year olds. Lots of energy, lots of speed in the basically the athletic prime of their lives and um, yeah, are capable of pretty much catching, consuming virtually all forms of marine life out there. Incredible. So along the way of working with a shark, you know, I've obviously had huge exposure to a great variety of other forms of wildlife and and one of the, the true privileges for me is to, to venture down into the southern latitudes to some of the remotest places on Earth. And when you're down in these southern latitudes, you're in some of the most exposed environments on the planet with some of the roughest, wildest weather. And we find these environments incredibly uncomfortable, dangerous, and just really 
generally not places for human beings, but the animals that revel in it. And, and one of those are the pelagic birds, the open ocean birds, the, the nomads of the sea. And an image like this really just sums it up. You know, you've got big swells out there, some of which are probably 10, 12 foot, and these birds are just moving from crest, from crest to trough with consummate ease. And, and they almost revel in, in the wilder the weather, the better it is for them. And um, going on a, a little bit further to a place called South Georgia Island, if, if you had to ask me where would I, if you gave me 24 hours left to live on this planet to photograph any any wildlife, where would it be? I'd have to say on this beach, which is called St. Andrews Bay Beach on South That's Georgia That's incredible. Island. It reminds me of, um, have you ever seen Saving, Saving Private Ryan, where they come onto the beach at the start? And you've got all these soldiers fighting for their lives, and there's planes, and there's there's bombs going off, and the the the, the birds in the air remind me of like you know, you know, f f fire from 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 top, and then you've got all the soldiers, and it's it's just chaos, but it looks it looks incredible. Well, I I love your comparative, and um, I think it's a very apt one. It's it's exactly like that. It, it is it is. Chaos. It's, it's organized chaos, but it is nothing other than chaos. So, and these birds, which which stand around about three foot tall each, and there are more than 750,000 of them on this beach, each one is making a little noise like a, a tiny Formula One car. So if you've ever been to a Formula One paddock or pit and you've listened to a Formula One car raving its engine, that wow, wow, wow noise, you magnify it by 750,000 times. Add into that some four, five thousand pound elephant seals, a whole host of other birds, <coughs> unbelievable scenery with glaciers carving into the ocean, waves crashing against the beach, early morning mist being kissed by the first rays of sun, and it'll it'll give you an idea of what it's like to stand on that beach at South Georgia Island. It's just insane. Yeah, just um, truly incredible. Insane. So this this here is. An image that really touches on what I was speaking about earlier, and that was an, an intimacy with these animals. This is a, a wandering albatross, the bird with the largest wingspan on the planet, capable of circumnavigating the globe in less than a month. They live to 65 years, mate for life, and will head more than 4,000 kilometers in a single feeding event to bring food home for the chicks. And on this particular occasion, I've been sitting in this tussock grass close to where these birds were, and eventually they both walked right up to me. They're completely wild birds. All the animals I work with are completely wild. And they came up to me, and this huge male draped his wings over the top of me while they were engaged in a, a courtship dance with their bull cracking. And I just thought to myself, you know, these animals are under such huge pressure from, from humanity. I think 19 of the 23 species of albatross were threatened with extinction. And they allowed me into their space, completely feeling unthreatened by me. And it was just it was just a, a very thought-provoking moment. And, um, yeah, just truly, truly magnificent creatures. And, uh, and what, what an amazing opportunity to have. Well, he looks like he means business, this one. Yeah, so this is your, this is your Formula One of the... The ocean. This is this is a, a mako shark, the fastest shark in the sea. And from a fine art point of view, 
I couldn't think of a more perfectly hydrodynamically shaped animal with iridescent colors. It's the, essentially the great white of the open ocean, and it, it's an animal I really love photographing. When I'm out there, I'm usually diving over water that's typically between 1,000 a, a to 3,000 meters in depth. So what's that? It's just under 7,000 feet. You sometimes 100 kilometers offshore, and you're encountering animals that have never come across a human in their life before. So in many cases, they're pretty bold, come right up to you, and it's it's always exciting. I mean, I, I love it. You know, being close to these predators is is, is what is really it's really what's made my my life all these years so exciting. And yeah, just to to have a chance to showcase these animals in a beautiful way that that illustrates. The very essence of what makes each special is, is, is fantastic. Is it, so with with sharks, there must be a misconception, maybe because of the media, and maybe because people just highlight the ho- horror stories. Some of the obvious ones is shark attacks, and people believe that sharks are just aggressive animals. And and some people will go as far as oh, we we don't need them, etc. That's not my words. I'm just you know voicing what maybe uneducated people may say. What what is it really like, Chloe, when you go into their territory and you're down there and you're, you're diving, and you're trying to get the right shot? Are they as, aggre- as as aggressive as people think they are, or are they are they just like any animal? The only time they become aggressive is when you prov- provoke them or when you you're seen as prey. Well, I think you. I don't really even need to answer the the, the, the question anymore. I think you touched on on both of those. Those, those reasons. The, the first being, you know, when they provoke, any animal is going to defend itself. If, if I was provoked and put in a corner and, and threatened, I would defend myself. And in terms of prey, sharks don't see humans as their natural prey. You know, they, they've evolved over 400 million years to feed on specific things, and humans are, are not one of those. Occasionally, and very occasionally, humans do fall prey to sharks, but if, if you consider how many hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, are using the ocean every day, and in many cases, unbeknownst to those humans, are coming into contact with sharks. The likelihood of attack is unbelievably small. In the case of great white sharks, only 23% of all great white shark attacks are fatal, with less than 7% of all fatalities resulting in full consumption. So these sharks are not attacking us as a prey source or as a food source. In many cases, it may be mistaken identity. Or, in some ways, we might be infringing on social behavior we're not aware of. And, and I'll elaborate on that in, in so much as when I work with lions, and I think people can relate better to lions being terrestrial animals and being a cat, when a lion puts its ears back and its tail starts twitching, even the most inexperienced person would realize these are, this is the body language of an animal that's becoming agitated. And if I don't move away from it, or just stay dead still, there's going to be a resulting action. And when great white sharks interact with each other, they're dropping pectoral fins, they're often arching their back, they're swimming in tight circles, and each one of those things registers a a different effect on another shark. So they're they're using body language in the same way as what we talk. And if the shark doesn't react to the body language of an individual, another, another individual, there's a result. And I think quite often, having, you know, worked with, with white sharks underwater where they've displayed body language to me, I think if you don't take, you know, a correct action of either just staying still or backing away rather than moving towards the animal, 
it results in, in a shark defending itself. You see it a lot with reef sharks as well. And inadvertently, humans on, pa- on, on surfboards paddling over the top of the shark, the shark displays on them, the human keeps paddling, the shark you know, might react in a way that the human didn't expect. And likewise, you know, considering there are less than 10 fatalities related to sharks globally a year, you know, there also could easily be mistakes. I mean, hell, I know I probably make 100 mistakes every day of my life, and you consider sharks make 10 fatal mistakes globally a year, that's not too bad an average. We kill over 100 million sharks as humans, so I guess they have a, a lot more to fear from us than, than we do of them. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. So this image then, Chris, uh, I can see dolphins, I, I would assume. Yeah, so see what we got here is a, a, a work that I'm very proud of in that it's, it's a very difficult work to capture. You've got dolphins both breaking the surface in the background and then seeing the dolphins underwater in the foreground. And what makes this, this photographic work difficult is to get the balance right. If a single one of those dolphins in the foreground breaks the surface, the complete feel of the, or emotion of that image is disturbed. So you need perfectly calm conditions. You need to position a vessel alongside the dolphins where they're comfortable with your presence. You need to be close enough to the front that you're not getting broken water. You need a clean horizon. You need to use uh, a graduated filter to balance the sky and the water, which is obviously difficult on the sea. So it's a result of, of a of a complex number of different variables that need to come together. And it's really, for me, showcases the two realms that, that dolphins work in, and that's both above the water and below the water. So, yeah, it's a, a difficult image. This image here is, is many, many years in the making. Um, up, obviously, working with sharks and, and other and dolphins, you come across whales on a regular basis. And I'd always wanted to get a classic whale tail. I don't think there's really a more iconic symbol of the sea than a whale's tail. Uh, it, symbolize, it symbolizes you know, the gentle giant, it symbolizes balance, it symbolizes peace. And, and you know, to get a, a really iconic shot is difficult because you've got to get close enough to the animal that you break the horizon line. Otherwise, the tail is lost in the ocean. And once again, that requires the trust of the whale. And in this case, we spent several days getting these animals familiar with us. They were feeding in a, in a large area. They were probably a hundred humpback whales together. And over the course of that time, they, they began to see us as being completely non-invasive. And eventually, they would feed right next to the boat. And uh, I was lucky on this occasion to actually have this whale fluke right next to me, shooting with a wide-angle lens from a very low angle. Our boat is designed that I can get really low. And, yeah, it almost feels like you can reach under and, and touch that tail. But this still wasn't enough for me. There's, there was a photo taken by a very famous marine artist called Bob Talbot in the, the 1990s. And as kids, everybody had a Talbot on their walls. You know, it was this iconic whale tail, the whale moving away. The tail was perfectly balanced as the fluke re-entered the water. Lovely, calm sea. And I always saw that as the benchmark of of excellence when it came to, to trying to get an image like that. And, I chased it for many years and never came close. But towards the end of last year, I was able to get an image that wow. I was and a work I was truly, truly yeah. proud of. That is special. The balance is perfect. The light is fantastic. And, and what I feel makes this image, for me, 
that much more unique and, and special is the fact that this animal has chosen to come towards me. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if the Talbot image can ever be beaten, but yeah, this is probably as close as I, I'm ever going to get. So, you, you so used, it's, a very, um, it's a very special moment to be in the company of these animals. Yeah, I can imagine. You used something there. You you, you said um, you described them as gentle giants. Now, even though, you know, I agree with that and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people reference them to being gentle giants before, just looking at the magnitude of the size of it. And as you say, it's coming towards you. So you can kind of see the spine, you know, the, the notches going down towards the tail or the fin. Um, you know, you're that close. Are you ever feeling a little bit apprehensive, scared, nervous, even though you've got a lot, lot, lot of experience, Chris? See, I'd be lying if I say sometimes my heart's not in my throat. You know, I work with my wife and, and we've got an, an incredible team uh combination but she's always looking after my back you know sometimes i'll be focusing on one animal and i don't necessarily see another one coming but to be honest i think being relaxed in in these sort of uh, moments really holds its weight in terms of um the, the animals pick up on that as well you know you, you you build trust over time and if an animal's choosing to come towards you uh you know, where it can go in any other direction of a chose, it generally does so in a non-threatening way. So it's, it's very rare that I that I that I, I feel scared. Obviously, it's a huge creature. You know, it weighs it weighs this animal weighs close to to thirty tons. That tail that you see there is four meters across, and the whale's not more than probably you know twenty twenty or thirty feet away from me. So yeah, it's just. just it's just an awe-inspiring moment, you know, to to have a to have an encounter like this. You, you, I wouldn't say I ever feel scared. I mean, every time I have a, an, an encounter like this, I I feel so alive. I don't think I ever feel more alive than than when I'm in these moments. You, you know, you come out of it, and it's just every part of you is excited and. If you can get a great work that captures a moment like that and you can share it with people less privileged than, than yourself, well, you know, I think you tick a lot of boxes. Absolutely. I mean, even looking at the, the water coming off of the, uh, the, you know, off the back end of the, of, of the well, I mean, that must, that must look like a, a rainfall, you know. It must be like a shower. It's, it's just such a beast, you know, like a, a, a big, you know, this big animal just going through the ocean, it must be such an amazing thing to see and witness. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you look at that photo and you, it's, it's very visual, but in reality, the whole experience is, is just all your senses are engaged. So you first see the whales in the distance and you see these vapors coming out of the water, almost like, like ghosts. You know, I, I kind of look at that as like the ghosts that have been released from Davy Jones's locker. And that's your first visual cue that the whales are there. And then you start hearing them exhaling, that deep sort of bellowy sound. Then when they get closer, if you're downwind, you start smelling them. And for all the great characteristics of whales, the scent of a whale is not the greatest one. So that, that's another sensory experience. And then finally, when they're really close, you find that waft of spray from their breath coming over you. So, you know, it touches you in every way possible, and um, it's, yeah, it's just a, a humbling experience. And 
you know, the, I, what I can liken it to is I spend um, around about 100 days of every year in the bush in the remote parts of, of Africa with my wife, seeking out specific locations to create, you know, really beautiful works that symbolize an amazing continent. And a whale and, a, and an elephant, to me, could be brothers and sisters from different realms. The feeling you have around an elephant is the same in close quarters as what you have from a whale. They keep rumbling when elephants communicate. And the, 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 the deep sounds whales make, you know, there, there are a huge amount of similarities. They've got deep social bonds. They, they live for a long time. They often move together in, in, in groups. And both have been unbelievably persecuted by our kind. So there's a huge overlap, and, and this image here was actually my final image in my 11th hour collection that we displayed at the party, and I kept this image in color, and the reason for that is it, it symbolizes the, the 11th hour. So all the preceding images were black and white. They symbolized what I had seen, the experiences I had had, and in many cases were scenes of animals that no longer exist on our planet. But this is an image I took in Mana Pools, which is in northern Zimbabwe, a, a year and a half ago, and it's of this magnificent bull elephant standing at the base of a huge ficus tree. And what it symbolizes is these two things still exist on our planet. Even though we are in the 11th hour, there is still time. There is color and an and a, array of hope. And if we make changes and we start protecting these wild environments, not only do we save these creatures, but in, in essence, I, I think we, we in some or other way nourish our souls when we go there, you know, and the world without a wild place is, is nothing more than a concrete jungle. And I, I think it's a, you know, a very, very different place to, to where we want to be. You talk about, you know, close encounters and, and how it feels. And this was with a, a massive matriarch in Kenya. I've been spending a little bit of time with her. She's the, the leader of this herd. And elephant females are, if you're going to be careful of any elephant, it's really a female that, that is protecting a herd. So you need to give them a lot of space. You need to give them a lot of time. You need to be calm and relaxed around them and build up their trust. And I, I was lying on the ground at the time, and I remember watching her come towards me, and she wasn't acting aggressively at all. And suddenly she walked closer, straight towards me, and I thought, sure. What am I going to do here other than lie dead still and, and kind of just back my judgment? And she came right up and you can see her, her trunk bending towards me there. And she reached out and gently from about two feet away sniffed me, pulled her trunk back in and kept walking. And it was just a wonderful feeling of acceptance to be so close to such a, a magnificent animal. You know, mm. we have less than 30 great elephants left in Africa that this is a female with unbelievable tusks, with unbelievable ivory, but only 30 or so tuskers left, those elephants that carry 100 pounds of ivory on either side of their trunk. And um, there used to be thousands. Now they're just 30 left. And I think that really you know, rings a, an alarm bell of just how it's time. Time to take action. I mean, yeah. to appreciate the content. What, what is your, I mean, I know what your view is going to be, but your you know, the emotion that must go through. I mean, I get really angry when I hear about these poachers and people killing sharks for their fin, for shark fin soup and uh, 
killing whales and, and elephants for their, their ivy and stuff. I mean, how does it make you feel, someone who's been around these animals for most of your life? Yeah, you know, obviously it's, it's desperate. You you get to know them as individuals. You get to know them as you, you would your friends. You get to know them as caring creatures. You get to know them as animals that allow you into their space. And then you have some guy who comes along from overseas and shoots the animal to take it home as a trophy, claiming that it was such a dangerous encounter. For goodness sake, all the animals I'm working with are completely wild. I'm, I'm lying no more than two or three feet away from them. You know, how big a deal is it to shoot an elephant from 100 yards away with a telescopic sight? It, it makes me feel that we as humans have got a huge amount to learn. We might consider ourselves as the most in, intelligent creatures on the planet, but is intelligence measured by how much dominion you have over others? Or is it perhaps measured by how much you can accept all those around you and find a way to coexist with them? I don't, I don't know. Crazy. It's just crazy. And I, I, like, like you said, you know, the, the, the statistics, the figures, the, the number of these animals which are becoming less and less and less every single year and they're becoming very endangered and some have, have gone into extinct, extinction. Um, surely we should just wake up and think, you know, enough is enough. We do not need these tusks and we do not need to hang, hang them in our, in our homes as trophies. Because for me, if you get into a boxing ring, I do boxing, Chris, okay, and you have a fight with someone, a controlled fight, okay, and at the end of it, you know, you win or you lose, I would say those people, are, you know, heroic, you know, they, they've gone in now, um, the chances of getting hurt are quite high, the chances sometimes even getting killed is, is definitely there. Um, but you put a lot of blood, sweat and tears, you train, you know, you're focused, and at the end of it, you shake each other's hands. If you want to be a hero, do something like that. But don't go out there and shoot an animal when they're just walking across their, uh, their, the, the, the landscape there with, uh, like you said, with a telescopic gun and um, claiming that you're some kind of hero because you're far from it. In actual fact, I'm going to be brutal, you're, you're scum. You know, you're absolutely scum of the earth. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. No, it makes no sense whatsoever. And all you're doing is, is robbing a continent of its heritage. You're robbing the world of its heritage. You're not, you're not achieving anything other than destroying a, a magnificent animal that was part of a, a strong social bond and would lead to chaos within that herd. So there's, there's, there's nothing manly to be, to be proud about to hang one of these animals on a wall. And, um, yeah, fortunately we are seeing change. And, you know, they're, there are many other there are many other ways to get your rocks off other than killing wildlife. So you know, yeah, this is another animal that's persecuted, and um, you know, another example of, of how I've spent a lot of time getting to know these lions. They're completely wild. This is in the Central Kalahari Game Reserve in in Central Botswana. They're absolutely and the be image, they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, they, they, they're truly magnificent animals. And, you know, this is another one. I'm lying on the ground. These animals are walking towards me. Cool. They, they, they've, they've chosen to accept me in the environment. I, obviously, when I'm working with lions, I don't let them walk right up to me and lick me and, and, and give me a hug. But I, I always put myself in a position where if I need to, I can move back to a vehicle or I've got some place where I'm safe. I never, I never carry a weapon. Because I believe at the end of the day, if I've got myself into a position where I need to use a weapon, 
I shouldn't have got myself in that position in the first place, and the animal doesn't need to die or suffer because of a, of, of a consequence of mine. So I build up an animal's trust, I let it get as close as I'm comfortable, and then I move if I need to move. And How close was that, that, was that line? Uh, this particular line was probably around about 20 meters away. He saw me lying on the ground, and then he eventually moved into the grass, walked a fair distance into the grass and around me, and then just kept on going. And, um, you know, I really like it when I can capture the essence of an animal by looking at eye level at the creature. I never like to shoot down on an animal. I, I believe that it's a, it's a view that, that takes the relationship between humans and animals and puts humans on a pedestal. You know, if, if you talk to somebody, you look them in the eye, and I like to photograph animals creating that connection. So for me, I like to be in the animal's, in the animal's uh, line of sight and really do justice to, to trying to create that connection. So, yeah, whether it's terrestrial animals or marine animals, it, it really is about getting to know them, finding out what makes them tick, and I really have gravitated to, you know, trying to build up a, a fine art portfolio of the most iconic creatures on the planet. So in Africa, for sure, those elephants and, and lions, sharks in the sea. You know, we're going to be starting to do some work with, with bears in North America, some tigers in, in India, and showcase <clears throat> these animals because... For me, they symbolize the very essence of, of what makes the planet so wild and special. That's, that is my favorite one. Um, Chloe show, sh- showed me this, and also Marcus, I think you know Marcus Vinton. And um, yeah. this is my favorite, and I'll tell you why. Not only is it breaching, um, I think the light from the right-hand side you've captured so well. It's almost like the gods or the, the, the spirits are op- opened up for this shark. But then just above it is this chilled kind of, I, I want to call it seagull, but you're probably going to say it's different. But there's this very relaxed bird looking down at this, at this act of, 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 you know, attack, basically. I think it's such a powerful photo that. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the fact that you, you touched on all the, the things that really make it special. And it's got a very, very strong story, this image. This image is called The Final Act. And the reason it's called The Final Act is that it was the last truly memorable breach that I ever saw at Seal Island before the sharks disappeared. And it, it, it really kind of, for me, every time I look at that, it's a, a very emotional image, having spent 25 years working at that location with these sharks. And this was the, the final curtain call. So it's, it's a very, very powerful moment. That behavior hasn't been seen there since, and it was one of the most memorable breaches with the most beautiful light. And like you say, if, um, if I could have Photoshopped in a bird, I couldn't have done any better than that bird has actually done to be there. So yeah. it's, it's a very, very special special work, and um, it's got a very poignant, powerful message, and it's got yeah, a very strong me- memory for me. It's amazing. It's a re- re- really, really incredible uh, captured photo there. Thank you. So the last one I'm going to show you is of a of a work that uh, I took last year called The Pearl. And uh, I called it The Pearl because pearls don't wash up on beaches. You've got to dive down for them and, and 
put in a lot of effort to find them. And this this work is the culmination of 30 years as a as a wildlife photographer specializing in fine art, and it it really brings a huge amount of complexity together. So what I've done here is I've got a a small little craft that I put my camera in and I tow it behind a boat, and that allows me to get very close to the shark. The sharks are are, are are left put off by a small little craft rather than a big boat. And what I've done is I've brought in a beautiful sky, a little bit of an island on the left, and then a huge amount of mood to capturing this very wide angle uh, image from very close quarters of a breach that just was unlike any other breach I've really seen. You know, that's a, that's a large shark around about 10 foot in length. And when the shark cartwheeled, the highest point of that shark was more than 15 feet clear of the water. And it just symbolized the incredible athletic ability of these animals in, in a beautiful way. And, you know, when you bring in the textures of the clouds and the ocean and the, the curtain of water falling, it, it's got a very strong artistic feel to it. So, yeah, that, that's an, an image I'm, I'm very, very proud of and was incredibly privileged to be at the right spot at the right time, albeit after putting in... <laughs> A fair bit of work but yeah that's a, a selection of a couple of my, my limited edition works and hopefully uh you know we, we we're going to be moving further afield around the world and, and really put, putting that portfolio into different locations for people to have exposure to the unbelievable privilege i've had over the last 30 or 40 years of working with these amazing animals and, and most importantly see it as a collection that that is a call to action. It symbolizes some of the greatest creatures on our planet. But at the same time, these animals desperately need us to change our ways. Round of applause, mate. It's what a, you know, I've just been sitting here in awe of your work and um, just listening to you. I mean, I've had a few artists on my podcast, Chris, and I've got to say, you are definitely the most passionate, the most educated, the most experienced in your field. And I just really feel it as as you're talking about your work. So it's, it's been an honour just, just going through these images with you, Chris. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's been such a such a lovely lovely chat to have with you. And um, to hear that you've got a real interest in natural history too. I can hear when you talk about animals that you, you clearly love them. And, um, yeah, we might be sitting on, on, on different continents a long way away, but there's a connect between people like that. And we realise, you know, the world is a far more special place for having wild places and wild creatures. So, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Look, it's part, um, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but it's, it's partly uh, the reason why two and a bit years ago I actually stopped eating meat. Um, it's just because when I used to see videos of certain animals getting slaughtered, now I know there's an argument that, you know, it's different because they're not in the wild, but I couldn't get the images out of my head and I had to stop. Um, I still eat uh, fish only occasionally, but I'm pescatarian, but I probably have fish two or, th- two or three times a week and most of the other time in fruit and veg. And um, I just felt it was a calling in me. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's better than anybody else. It was just my calling. And I just didn't like the fact that, you know, animals were being killed and they didn't really need to be killed. And then when you start seeing these wilder animals, you know, the, the whales, the, the lions, the tigers, the chimpanzees to the giraffes i mean it really it really gets me my blood boiling to be honest chris and um yeah people like you are doing such great work and 
emphasizing the problems out there i think through your work it's not only great work that people can enjoy but there's a message there and i think that's that's really important yeah thanks Steve. Uh, you know it's exactly as you say we can all make individual choices and our individual choices as a collective make a difference and uh, pretty much the bulk of all the proceeds of my final collection are going towards buying land in southern africa for rehabilitation and, and rewilding you know my wife and i we don't have kids and one day when we die, we want our legacy to, to be to have left these large chunks of land in a state where the wildlife is preserved, future generations can enjoy it. And, um, yeah, you know, we, we all have an impact and we all have a chance to make changes and, and differences. And hopefully if we can, if we can, you know, get our work out there, that'll be our legacy. Yeah, that's that's, yeah, that's a powerful vision. So we've seen mostly uh, animals in, in the water, the whales and, and the sharks and, and things like that. There were a few shots of lions. What are the most, you know, really exciting animals that you've ever shot, Chris, or exciting moments? Can you walk us through, like, a particular time or a particular event where you thought, whoa, this is not only scary but quite exciting and I really had a really good experience? Yeah, I mean, there have been a couple of, uh, I won't say I've had any truly scary moments. In, in 1994, I had a three-meter great white shark accidentally get into a cage with me for over a minute. And, um, yeah, that was a, a little bit more intimate than I, I, I would have liked. How did you get out of that <laughs> and, one? Uh, say again? How did you get out, out of that one? So so what actually happened it was really in the, in the early days of, of diving with sharks in South Africa, and uh, a friend and, I, and myself had built a, a cage that probably wasn't as, as strong as it should have been. And we had several great white sharks around at the time. I was in the cage on my own. And one of the sharks came up to the cage. And because they don't have hands, they often will mouth the cage. And it put its head between the bars. And when this generally happens, all you do is you grab a shark by its snout and push it away. And what happened here is the shark came in and wedged its head. I was looking the other way. And by the time I turned around to push it out, the shark had started panicking. They don't have a reverse gear. Sharks go forward, and that's, that's kind of what they do. So the shark panicked and started really propelling itself, thrusting its tail, and it buckled the bars of the cage open. Eventually, the whole shark got into the cage with me. It was a, a round cylindrical cage and broke the top of the cage. So I was pinned to the bottom. The shark was going across my chest, shaking like crazy, trying to bite and find whatever it was that was restraining it. And the only way I could possibly, I couldn't, the shark was just too big. I couldn't squeeze past it. I had a diving knife on, but I wasn't going to stab and try to kill the shark. It would never, it would just have driven it more crazy. So what I did, I was able to grab the shark under its jaws like this and lift its head in the water. They're almost mutually buoyant, even though they're huge creatures, and wedge its head in to the opposite side of the bars that hadn't been broken yet. And that brought the tail down back into the water, which then was, able to get traction and it literally swam through the bars from the inside out out the cage and got out and that lasted for around about a minute but I can tell you when I came out of the water even though I wasn't actually that terrified my legs were shaking so I can still remember how they were shaking it was like jelly um, the adrenaline was just cursing through coursing through me like like probably nothing I'd ever experienced unfortunately the shark wasn't injured and, and I wasn't injured. So we both came out of that pretty good. But yeah, there's, there's been 
you know, so many moments working with wildlife that have that have touched me. Um, from being allowed really close up to a breeding herd of elephants, where they've known that I don't pose a threat, to having lions close to me. But I think watching watching young seals escape sometimes two, three, four, even five great white sharks having a go at them. And these young animals are, are six months of age and have the presence of mind to outwit, outlast, out, and outmaneuver multiple different great white sharks and, and eventually get back onto a, a little island to huge breaking surf. Um, seeing those rare vets where, you know, these seals outlasted multiple sharks and, and feeling that incredible surge of adrenaline. You're taking photographs of it, but at the same time, you're very aware that you're watching a very real life and death battle. And by the end of it, you know, you, you're literally hoping for an explosive breach, but you want the seals to kind of balance on the shark's jaw and, and get away. And when the seals do get away, yeah, I'm, I'm always... I'm a softie. I'm always shouting for the prey, so I'm generally happy. So, yeah, there have been, sure, so many moments. I can't, I can't even recall them all, you know. Yeah, what a privilege. And, Chris, I mean, so there, there must have been, sadly, you know, but it's, it's, just, it's just wildlife where you are seeing these prey getting killed quite, you know, quite frequently. Is there any ones that stand out where you thought, whoa, that was, that was bloody, that was gruesome? Yeah, there've been a couple watching watching orcas or killer whales kill dolphins. Is, 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 it's an incredible natural history event, but it's um, it's unbelievably traumatic to watch because in many cases they don't kill the dolphin straight away and they play around with it. And without going into it too graphically, the the dolphin's doing its best to get back to its, its pod, and it's it's not easy to watch. You know, it's, it's harsh natural history. Uh, watching watching lions bring down big prey, um, you know, it goes on for a long time. That that's that's really tough. Watching crocodiles catch wildebeest crossing, you know, the, the Mara River, and the wildebeest is desperately trying to get to the other bank, and the crocs holding it down, and and it just goes on and on and on. And a huge part of you wants to rush in and interfere, but it's not right to do that. You know, you can't rob the predator of its prey. You, you just can't. So, you know, you have extreme highs and you have extreme lows. And I think what you get is an incredible appreciation of, of, of life and what a gift it is to have life. And I guess in many cases how, you know, we as humans have forgotten what it's like to have a, an apex predator chasing us and how, you know, wildlife, Particularly, particularly the prey always has to be on its a day, a game every single day. As I say, the predator can make several mistakes. When you're the prey, you can only make one, and it's game over. So you have to be the fastest, sharpest, most alert, uh, most intelligent, and in many cases, the luckiest to survive. And yeah, survival. Survival in nature is rough, tough, brutal, and it's a it's a great teacher. A bit of a uh, more of a, a selfish question from from me. Um, my favourite animals are definitely tigers. I would say I think they're beautiful. I, I know they're the largest of the cat species, uh, I believe. Siberian tiger yeah. is that right? Are they the the largest? Yeah. Um, 
So, um, you know, I've had the pleasure. I've, I went to Thailand before and I've, I've seen f- a few there. And I, now looking back, it probably wasn't the, the, the r- most right thing because it was a place called Tiger King- Kingdom. And I'm, I'm convinced now, now, looking back, this was many years ago, probably 10 years ago, that they were probably drugged up. But I, I, I got to see them. Um, and then obviously black, you know, black panthers and also uh, leopards and things. Have you had any really cool shots or any cool encounters with jaguars, leopards, tigers, them kind of cats? Um, yeah, I've been incredibly lucky to have experiences with all of them. In fact, in, in 2012, I was, I was lucky enough to, to see all the great cats in one year. And that included doing one of the first trips ever into the Himalayas to look for snow leopards. And I'll never forget, you know, seeing that snow leopard after a very long trek, spending a lot of time in the, in the Himalayas. To ski. You, sit, you literally sit with a pair of binoculars on all day, looking at a mountain that never changes its shape, trying to find a creature that is pretty much invisible. In the Himalayas, they call, it, call them the Shan, and that is the grey goat. And they are, they kind of, You've been staring at the same rock for an entire day, and suddenly there's a snow leopard there. And I'll never forget seeing that first snow leopard. I, I, I never got a great shot of it, but just the experience of seeing this big male in the distance walking up the crest of a, of a mountain on the edge, and from its right it was getting rimless, and you could just see it exhaling, plowing chest deep through the snow, where it was walking upwards to where a whole lot of blue sheep preferred prey source were and yeah that was that was that was amazing you know to, to see a snow leopard in the wild especially nearly a decade ago absolutely incredible and like you said like you say seeing a tiger a tiger anyone who hasn't seen it is just so breathtakingly beautiful it it takes it, it, it literally does take your breath away i remember my wife when she first saw a tiger she just started crying you know, we were we were in a park called Band of Guy in, in India and we watched this magnificent tigress come walking through through the grass towards us in a place called City Baba. And uh, yeah, just the, the the bulk, the beauty, the regalness of a tiger, you know, there's there's no cat really like it. Jaguars are for me <laughs> if I had to say they the I don't want to call them the ugly sister because they, they, they're magnificent. They're absolutely magnificent. But they've got rather strange features. They, they, they haven't got quite the refinement of a, of a leopard and they, they haven't quite got the bulk of a tiger or, or a lion. Um, so amazing to see. And their behavior is truly incredible because they catch a lot of their prey in the water, which is it's not unique amongst cats, but it's rare amongst cats. And um, yeah, seeing a seeing a jaguar trying to catch you know its prey in in the the, the rivers of of South America, uh, in the Pantanal, that that was amazing. And then you know, ironically, if you had asked me what my favourite cat is, I would say it's a, a female lion. I, I love the way a lioness moves. There's a there's a, such a there's such a sexy beauty to it. You know, you watch that rhythmic movement of of the shoulder blades. And this creature just glides with with athleticism, power, and grace over, over its terrain. And their, their hunting prowess is, is just incredible. You know, they they such brave, determined animals that every time they go out to hunt, they risk their lives to bring on food. And it's a 
it's a hostile environment, the lion pride, and the lionesses really are, are, are the ones that bring home the bacon every night. And yeah, the movement of a lioness, very, very difficult to be. I've got two uh, house cats, tabby cats, and I can't tell you, like, I'm so fascinated with their characteristics because they're so like a lion. Now, when I say that to my friends who don't have cats, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm saying, look, if you watch wildlife programs and you watch my cats, the way they sit around, the way they act is so similar. Even like you said, the twitching of the towel. When they're about to attack and they go poised and the towel twitches, it's unbelievable to watch. And uh, it's only when I've got cats, when I've truly sort of um, recognised it and, uh, and seen it for myself. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I just hope they don't start bringing giraffe into your living room. Because you might have a problem there. But yeah, cats are, are are all incredible. Like you say, from your own domestic cats, you know the way they move. Watching a domestic cat jump onto a ten foot high wall, you know, you suddenly realise how, how unathletic we are as human beings. And um, watching a lioness hunt at night or a cheetah run down a gazelle, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely incredible. A caracal or a lynx jumping. 12 foot into the air to snatch a, a pheasant or a, a sand grouse out of the air. Cats are, cats are amazing. You know, their, their senses, their movement, and um, their hunting ability is second to none. Uh, and the last point I want to make on on the animals, and I want to talk a bit more about your career and where, where it's going to go, and also your past as well, Chris. Um, over the years, I've got fascinated with the wild dogs, wild hunting dogs. Um you know, I used to have a bit of a, you know, a, a weird, not obsession, but like interest with like hyenas. And then I started looking yeah. at the, the, when I, if I've ever gone on the internet and just looked at animals and looked at some of the attacks and stuff, I see the wild hunting dogs. I mean, they are, they are magnificent, but you wouldn't want to get in uh, caught up with the dogs, would you? I mean, they, they are just, they are brutal and fierce. The, uh, the irony is that, a wild dog is my favorite of all terrestrial animals. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's that they work as a team and they work for the youngest and the weakest in the pack. They're always looking after each other. And we've been very lucky. I've spent a, a, a very significant amount of time around wild dogs in Southern Africa, mostly in a place called Mana Pools in Zimbabwe, where my wife and I, it's one of the few places in Africa where you're allowed to, to walk with wildlife. And obviously, you know, there's a there's a certain self-preservation element in that, and I wouldn't recommend anyone who's not experienced going out there and doing it. But um, under the right circumstances, it's an amazing opportunity. And over the years, we went on many, many different hunts with the dogs, where we literally would walk with them and watch them hunt and bring down their prey. And whilst they are incredibly uh, brutal in terms of the prey, literally get ripped apart in seconds. If I was a prey. I would rather die in seconds than be under a chokehold of a cat for 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, dogs get the job, they catch their prey and they get the job done unbelievably quickly and efficiently and it's all over. And um, yeah, watching the mannerisms of the wild dogs, they make a kill, the individual that makes the kill will then go back and call the pack, take them to where the kill was. Then they'll feed on it, and then they'll go back to the den, regurgitate it for the pups, bring it back for the weak dogs. And it's, it's an amazing example of, of teamwork, you know, where with lions, when there's a kill, 
Whoever gets in there first grabs as much as they can. It's like a, a, a gang of thieves getting into a jewelry store. And, um, you know, the dogs are, the, the dogs really have a, an, an amazing, um, bond and teamwork. And there are very few of them left. It's, it's Africa's second most endangered, uh, predator after the, the Ethiopian wolves. Um, so very few places left to see them. But if you, if you want to see the dogs, Monopools National Park in Zimbabwe, very few places that are better than that. Uh, uh, is that because they've been hunted by, by poachers? The dogs are a byproduct of poaching in that people set, <clears throat> set snares for other animals and the dogs fall prey to those snares. But wild dogs are seen as vermin, particularly by hunters in years gone by, because, uh, sorry, particularly by farmers in years gone by, because they were thought that they'd move through an area and just wipe out an, an entire herd of goats or cattle or whatever the case may be. And in places like Zimbabwe and Botswana, there actually used to be bounties on their heads. So for every dog skin you dog you brought back, you would get paid to be paid a ransom. And um, that had a devastating effect. Other problem with dogs is they're highly susceptible to uh, to disease carried by feral dogs. So things like rabies, parvovirus, the temper, dogs can ease, wild dogs can easily contract that from mixing with feral dogs. So in poor areas where dogs are not inoculated properly and you have an overlap with wild dogs, sometimes an entire pack of wild dogs can become prey to that. And then wild dogs need huge, huge areas. They've got massive territories. And that means them obviously often having to go to areas where they're not protected or cross huge roads where they get knocked over. The dogs have got a lot of threats. They, they're not hunted ready for trophies and they're generally not targeted by poachers. But as a, as a culmination or, or a combination of all those other threats, they're one of the most endangered of all the predators in Africa. Right. So, Chris, uh, so the start of your journey then, as, as, a, as a young boy, did you ever think or feel or, or know that you were going to become this person who's going to make documentaries, travel the world, photography, and now move your, your, your pieces into art form? Was that ever the, the plan, or did you have a different plan? No, my, my whole life I, I wanted to work with, with wildlife. I, I was passionate about nature from my very first memories. I was very lucky to have a father who was very interested in wildlife and I got to see some of Southern Africa's most well-known game parks and kind of almost grew up in the bush. So there was always that interest there. He was a, an amateur wildlife photographer and um, I, I kind of saw the, you know, the results of his work and I wanted to start taking photographs. And then in the very early 90s, when I was lucky enough to discover that unique breaching behavior, uh, I took a couple of photographs and... Um, they ended up on newspaper covers all around the world. And I, and I instantly realized there was an opportunity for me to make a career out of my photography and at the same time do what I loved, which was just be out in the field taking, taking imagery of, of nature. So, yeah, it was, it was always a love of animals. The photography came alongside that. And then... Throughout my career as a photographer, and for any photographer out there, you, you start out by just wanting to take an image of whatever you can. Then you start wanting to take portraits and, 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 and get close. Then you want dramatic action. And in my case, what I really wanted to start doing was conveying the essence of each species. And in some cases, that meant then 
meant getting really close to these animals, wide angles, making my audience feel that they were right up there with the animal and bringing the environment of the animal. So in, in essence, creating an, an artwork of an entire ecosystem all bring the essence of my subject into my art. And, and that's kind of where it's progressed to now and, and hence the, the launch of our collection last year at the Sachi Gallery. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, say this to you. So when I w- walked into the room for the first time at the Saatchi Gallery, I'm an owner of uh, David Yarrow, right? And I saw that some of your pieces were um, kind of displayed and framed very similar to one that I've got indoors. And at first I thought it's was David Yarrow and then Chloe educated me and um, I started looking at your work a, li- a little bit more. And I do want to own a piece eventually, Chris, so maybe we could talk about that another time. Um so I've seen like David Yarrow's now going into auction for like a hundred grand, and f- f- you know, there's there's two hats that you guys have got to have. You've got to have the artistic hat or the the hat where you're creating your work, getting in that moment, embodying your surroundings, the environment, and I don't know, like you know, putting yourself in in these situations where you capture the very best shot. But then the other side, which sometimes galleries take over, um, is the let's say the investment side where people are buying your works and in years to come, they could fetch an auction for hundreds of thousands, maybe if not millions. Um, is that kind of where you want to see your artworks started to go? Is that, is that kind of the vision or are you just happy with capturing the shot, getting a narrative out there, getting a story, getting a statement out there and whatever happens to your market happens? Uh, for me, definitely there, there, there is a, a financial objective. And the financial objective is to, to try and raise as much as I can to the sales of my work to be able to buy large tracts of land in Africa to conserve wildlife. So I, I certainly do have a vision similar to that of, of David's and others like Nick Brunt. Um, I'm new to the, obviously the commercialization of my work, but I've had 30 years of building up that portfolio. So. You know, it's really always a case of marrying the two. And, and David is probably the world's best example of uh, taking fantastic wildlife imagery and then commercializing it to a point where they become collectible fine art pieces. As is Nick Brunt being a, a similar example to that. And for me, you know, it's, it's really a case of I just want to put out there the very best work I possibly can. I, I don't want to have any mediocre work. I want to have small, limited collections. And sadly, many of the works now identify, as I was saying earlier, behaviors that no longer exist on the planet. So once those works are sold out, um, the very first image I showed you of a shark coming flying up, for example, is arguably the world's most famous shark image and one of the world's most famous wildlife images. When those 12 images are sold out, there will never be another one. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a very strong value in that, that that represents one of the greatest creatures that's ever lived on the planet, one of the most famous behaviors we've known in the last hundred years that now no longer exists. So I, I certainly see tremendous value in that. And, you know, it also carries a very strong message in that, yeah, we, we, we need to, to be aware of what's happening. These are beautiful creatures. Hopefully the images do them justice. But also, it's, it's, it's a work that's got a lot of meaning, I believe. 
Is um so Dave David Yarrow someone that you know personally? Yeah, absolutely, David. There's an interesting story with David, and uh, David used to come out on our, on our boats with our company Apex Shark Expeditions in Cape Town, and we became good friends. David is a is a guy that is pretty amazing in that you get a lot of people that jealously hold on to their secrets, and David has has always been prepared to sit down and 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 share, you know, his successes. And I'll never forget, he came to me one day, this must have been about 10 or 12 years ago, and he said, Chris, I finally found a way to make my, my passion work. He said, you know, selling work in, in for tabloids and that sort of thing is, is, is very hard work. You actually get very little return, often far little return than what it costs to go take the, the image. And he said, what you need to do is put out a very limited collection of incredibly good work, and you know it, it really needs to have meaning. And he said he had a well, the first, he took an image of a, a shark trying to catch a seal at Seal Island off our boat, and he he went home and he had a chap from Texas <clears throat> approach him and ask him, you know, how much for that work? And he said, you know, usually you're selling his his, his pictures for hundred two hundred dollars to newspapers, magazines, etc. And he thought, well, take a chance because to go. Now start framing works and printing them with, with incredible quality cost money. They said six thousand dollars. And the guy said, I'll take three. And right then the penny dropped that if your work is good enough, if it has meaning and it's everything you do represents quality from what the image looks like to the paper it's printed on, to how it's framed, uh, to creating a small limited edition, you know, it really is a is a collectible artwork. I think the time has come now where there's a huge amount of people out there that are fascinated by the natural world. They they rep, they realize it represents one of the most important components of living on this planet. And they also rep, realize that there are very few of these iconic creatures still left. So I think for many people, you know, it, it, it's something beautiful they can hang on their walls. And with no disrespect to uh, a lot of artists out there that sometimes seem so abstract that you actually aren't able to define the meaning. When you look at a beautiful work of a natural creature that you can instantly identify with and it has a presence or it creates an impact and you know, you don't, you, you're buying a work that's actually donating to a, a strong cause like David's and, and hopefully my, my own. I, I think it's very attractive to, to a buyer. And certainly, you know, considering a lot of David's works of iconic animals that are sadly going towards extinction and, and mine are obviously the same, you're buying into something that can never be replicated in a market that's got a growing appetite for it. So yeah, I see, I see huge value in it. I see tremendous that, uh, I see tremendous interest in people uh, moving towards sustainability. And I, I think certainly from a corporate side, you know, a lot of businesses are identifying with trying to create a relationship with entities that, that have at their very essence conservation and, and represent a, a movement to, to do what's good for the planet. And um, Chris, what, what are your goals? I know you said about your legacy and leaving a uh, vast amount of land uh, in the future for animals and people to like, you know, enjoy, etc. And obviously that's why you want to raise the profile of your own works and get some big sales behind you. Um, 
But by that, what what else is there for you over the next coming years, Chris? Because um, it feels like you've got so much more to give. Oh, you always you always hope you've got a another day out in the bush or another down the ocean, and, and you know, yeah, you you really you really never grow tired of it. You get older, your reflexes get slower, and you you can't always do what you used to do. But the passion grows stronger. You know, every day I go out, I look at the clouds. Every I, I hate to miss the sunrise and I hate to miss the sunset. Um, I, I yearn for wild places. And, and as such, you know, I really want to continue to chase horizons around the world. Um, I want to continue to, to try and capture images that are, are, are creatively different, um, have a strong meaning to them, and hopefully continue to inspire people. I, I, really, I really would like to be able to you know, have elevated podiums on which to talk and, and and showcase the natural world and hopefully influence decisions by governments around the world because ultimately governments make decisions. People people have got a voice, but it's generally the, those at the top that that put a signature on a page to protect or, or to chop down. So, yeah, to, to constantly just try and do what I can, either through my visual work or through the narrative to convey the essence of, of, of what is wild and what is needed out there. That's a strong mission there, Chris. And um, have you got any shows coming up over the next couple of months and years? So, so we're going to be exhibiting at, at Saatchi again with uh, the Start Art Fair later in the year, and we've got a, a couple of, of, of smaller shows lined up. Obviously, with COVID, the physical presence has, of being at a show has been you know, very, very difficult. So we're looking at, at a whole lot of different events. We're wanting to get into uh, Art Basel, Art Miami, uh, and, and you know, really just try and get into the, the US market. We've obviously started in the, the UK market, and that's going well. We we rap, rapidly starting to get you know a, a lot of attention for our work. But um, hopefully, you know, when the the dark veil of COVID is lift, lifted and we can start having physical exhibitions, that'll certainly help and. You know, the big thing is, is just to try really get exposure to, to global markets. Good stuff. Chris, where can people find you or your work if they want to know a bit more about you and maybe obtain some of your work? Steve, the easiest place is to go to our, our website, which is chrisfellows.com. And then uh, from Instagram point of view, if people would like to, you know, be kept abreast of, my latest work, as well as the, the stories and narrative behind the work and conservation issues, uh, Chris Fellows Photography is the, the tag to follow there. So, yeah, I, I would love to you know hear from people and um, hopefully inspire them where I can, and certainly from the purchase of our, of our work. Um, anybody who's interested, I, I would love to, to chat to you and um, see if, if we can uh, showcase some of our, our finer pieces for them. Great stuff. Chris, I've got a slogan, a mantra, which I try and live by, and it goes like this. Be happy, never content. If I were to ask Chris Fallows what be happy, never content, what does it mean to you? Be happy for me is to keep chasing horizons, keep doing what I love. Never content is until I see nature start recovering, I'll keep fighting. Love that. Chris, um, I love everything that you're about, everything that you stand for, your vision, 
your motivation, your goals, and how you're inspiring the world. And I'd, all I'm going to say, mate, is just keep it, keep it going, because um, what you just showed me here. I mean, this is I've never done a podcast like that where someone's walked me through their work, and we could have spoke for hours. You know, there's so much, so much depth to your work, and it's it's truly, truly beautiful. So, congratulations, mate. You're 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 a true success. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for those very kind words, and. Um yeah, it's just been a real privilege to chat to you and to your audience, and I really look forward to the next time. Yeah, perfect. Okay, well, look, this is going to be out in a few weeks' time. Uh, please subscribe, share, and tell everyone about this episode because it's going to be mind blowing to certain people because it has been for me. Uh, once again, Chris, thank you for your time, and I'll definitely be watching and I'll definitely be in touch about a, a piece. All right. Steve, look forward to it, and yeah, I really look forward to chat further. Take care. Be happy, never content. Have a fa- fantastic day, Chris. Mm-hmm.